The presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary-client, or attorney-client relationship. Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about probate part one of two is Lindsay Sarowitz. Lindsay has been with Handler & Levine since 2013. She is an associate with the firm and regularly represents individuals, including federal government employees, in preparing their estate plans consisting of wills, trusts, powers of attorney, healthcare directives, and other estate planning documents. She also represents estates and trustees in regard to descendants issues, helping guide families through probate and trust administration following the loss of a loved one. Ms. Sarowitz is a member of the bar in Maryland, Virginia, and the District of Columbia. How are you doing today, Lindsay? Hey, Jason. I'm good. Thanks for having me on today. How are yeah, you? Doing very well. Thank you. Looking forward to it. I believe this is our third webinar together. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. we just we keep racking them up. Definitely. So before we get started, for those that are joining us for the live webinar, if you have any, uh, any questions, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything in our power to get your questions answered. So, Lindsay, as you know, and for those that are going to be watching and listening to this, we have divided up this webinar on probate into two parts, mainly because there's just so much to cover. So let's start with some basics. What is probate? Good question. And yes, what you said is true. There's a lot to cover in this topic. Um, I actually teach a four-hour class on this, so uh, on probate in general. So uh, any questions that are thrown my way, hopefully I'll be able to answer. Um, so um, in general, the probate uh, probate is a court-supervised process, okay, so that's one thing to, that's important to remember, that the court is going to supervise this process uh, to first identify what assets the decedent, so the person whose estate is in probate, owned at their death, um, and then they oversee the distribution of those assets according to either the person's last will and testament, if they had one, or if there is no will, according to what's called the laws of intestacy in the jurisdiction, in the applicable jurisdiction. Um, so with regard to the applicable jurisdiction, just a quick note, um, the probate process will occur in the jurisdiction where the decedent was domiciled at their death. So domicile means residence, plus intent to remain. Um, so when it comes to um, to that, you know, it, it can become a whole nother interesting discussion uh, when talking about, especially in this, in the DC area, people moving for care and did mom have the capacity to have that intent to change her domicile or did daughter just move her to Virginia because the care was better there, for example. Um, so that's, I could go on a whole tangent about that, but I'm not going to. Um, but so um, one really important thing to remember with regard to probate is having a will or not having a will, that isn't the reason that you would have a probate estate. So if, if you have a will, you're not creating a probate. If you don't have a will, you're not creating a probate. And that's a very common misconception. The will is simply a set of instructions for what's going to happen in the probate process. So who's going to be in charge, where your assets are going to go, and things like that. 
Um, so I always want to be sure to clarify that from the very beginning, because again, that's a very common misconception. Yeah. So then if probate controls the probate assets, Lindsay, then the next question would be, what, what are probate assets? Excellent question as always. Um, so probate assets are assets titled in the decedent's name alone without joint with rights of survivorship, I'll explain that in a minute, designation, and that are not subject to a beneficiary designation. So let's break that down because that was a pretty pretty detailed or complicated uh, explanation. So um, it might be important or helpful to know about some different ways you can own property before diving into probate because again, probate only controls certain assets. Um, so of course, you can own property by yourself. I do, I own my bank accounts and things like that, just my name on them, right? So those are my assets alone. Um, or uh, so, so those would be subject to probate because they're just in my name alone, no joint with rights of survivorship owner on it and uh, no beneficiary designation. But another way you can own property is with another person, right? And I know that you have experience with this in, in the world of, you know, realty and being a realtor. Um, so one way that you can own property, whether it's um, bank accounts or, uh, you know, land or houses, whatever, is joint with rights of survivorship. So that is not subject to probate because if you own, let's say I own this building, I own it with my spouse. I wish I owned this building. Um, <laughs> I own it with my spouse and um, joint with rights of survivorship. Now, note that uh, owning property with a spouse, you can own it as tenants by the entirety. For our purposes, we're just calling it all the same thing, joint with rights of survivorship, because tenants by the entirety enjoy all the same benefits and everything as uh, joint with rights of survivorship plus some. Um, so say I own this building with my spouse, joint with rights of survivorship. If I pass away, he gets it automatically by operation of law, at least locally, he wouldn't even need to file a new deed nothing. If he wants to mortgage it or sell it or anything like that, after my death, he just presents a death certificate for me. And that shows that he's the sole surviving joint owner. Okay, so that's joint with rights of survivorship. So again, that wouldn't be subject to probate because it goes automatically to the survivor. Um, when it comes to Another way, that other way I mentioned to own property with someone else, it could be tenants in common. So let's say I own this building with my brother, um, tenants in common. What that means is when I die, my share, my 50% interest or whatever it may be, goes to my people. So when I say my people, I mean the people I've designated in my will, or if I die without a will, the beneficiaries under the order of precedence set by the law. So um, again, my brother dies, his share goes to his people, most likely through probate, my share goes to my people. So that's a big distinction when talking about what would be and wouldn't be probate. Now, when it comes to the first way I mentioned, joint with rights of survivorship, um, you know, 
it sounds really good. Um, uh, it sounds really good because, uh, like I said, the surviving joint owner does need to do anything, right? They don't need to take your property through probate or anything like that. Um, uh, so they can just, like I said, they can just hand over a death certificate to show that they own it. But sometimes it is good and it is appropriate, but sometimes it's not. Uh, so uh, we're not, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I do think it's important to mention, um, you know, sometimes people name a child as a joint owner because they've heard, oh, probate's horrible. Let me just name them as a joint owner right now. Or sometimes they'll even gift away assets before they die because they want to avoid probate. Um, my strong recommendation to anyone like that that might be listening is to speak to a professional before adding that joint owner on your account or on your real estate or before gifting or receiving a gift, uh, particularly with regard to an appreciated asset, because there's a bunch of rules about capital gains and and uh, step up and everything like that. So I just don't ever want someone to hear me talk about how, oh, joint ownership is so easy, mm -hmm. and then go and rush to doing things like that. Um, another reason is quite honestly, you know, um, joint ownership isn't always appropriate or potentially helpful. For example, like I was saying, me and my brother own this building. Well, if we have different heirs, different people that we want to inherit our share, then suddenly whoever is the second to die, their heirs get the whole thing. And whoever died first, their heirs are out of luck. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Again, the takeaway is, you know, um, to to make sure you think about it and, and make sure it's right. You know, don't just go adding someone onto your account. That seems logical. But, you know, sometimes I see people that added a child as a joint owner on their bank account um, because they thought, you know, okay, well, that'll make it easier. That'll make it not pass through probate. Well, that part's true. But you're also now exposing your asset to the liabilities of that child or that joint owner, right? So your child's creditors can now come after your asset um, or you need your child to sign off if you wanna sell your home or things like that, that would be a little uncomfortable. Uh, so again, just giving it thought is a good idea. Okay, now is there more to the definition of probate assets? Oh, right, thanks for getting me back on track. So. Okay. Um, so the uh, the next part of that definition was uh, not subject to beneficiary designation, right? Because I said uh, probate assets are assets titled in your name alone, so not joint with rights of survivorship. And then the second half is not subject to a beneficiary designation. So there are certain assets that have beneficiary designations, such as life insurance and retirement. Um, so just a few random, not so random, depending on your viewpoint, uh, notes that I do want to mention about beneficiary designated assets. It is very important to understand who your beneficiaries are. If you don't know, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, oh, I have no idea, you know, find out. 
that's typically pretty easy to find out from the company, from your employer, whoever issued the uh, retirement or life insurance policy, it's easy to find out. But if you can't find out, or if it's kind of more difficult than you're willing to, to uh, or more time consuming than you're willing to spend, uh, you can file beneficiary designations as often as you want. So if you know you filed one, but you just can't remember who it was, you can go ahead and file a new one. Um, and the most recent one that has been received and processed by the company will control at your death. So there's no such thing as a deathbed beneficiary designation, unlike deeds, like you probably know if a deed is signed and everything before death, even if it's not recorded until after death, it's okay. Um, you know, you can do deathbed deeds, you can do deathbed wills, um, but beneficiary designations must be uh, filed and processed by the agency. Um, so with a beneficiary designation, the asset, say the 401k or the life insurance policy or whatever it may be, will go straight to the person listed. So um, it's not going to go through probate. Uh, basically, they're going to file a claim form and a death certificate, and they get a check, or then they get to roll over your IRA or whatever it may be. Um, so a few other notes that are really important in my experience to keep in mind are um, if there is no beneficiary designation on file, so if you never sent one in and you just assumed that at your death your spouse will get it or you uh you know just forgot about it or whatever it may be um it's really important to know that you uh your asset is going to go according to the company's default rules so these are contracts beneficiary designations are contracts they all have default rules and they're not always consistent um, so when it comes to uh, you know I work with a lot of federal government employees they have a pretty clear uh, order of where those assets will go if you don't have a beneficiary designation but private companies and everyone like that theirs aren't so consistent in fact a couple years ago I had a case where this woman failed to file her beneficiary designations. She had two life insurance policies, both through the same employer and both with the same life insurance company. And um, one defaulted to go to the surviving spouse, which was great. That went outside of probate and all that. But the other one, again, same company. The other one said that if you didn't have beneficiary on file, it would go to your estate. So we had to open up an estate for this individual. And because she had a minor child, four at the time he was, um, that uh, the money going to the minor child, because the default rules in DC where this took place, said that the husband would get a percentage and the minor child would get a percentage. And minor children cannot inherit. So in that case, we not only had to open up a probate, but we had to open up a guardianship so that someone would oversee the money that was to go to the son. So um, lots of stuff that can get messed up uh, when it comes to 
beneficiary designations, but again, it's easy to file them, it's easy to find them, all that kind of stuff. So you can really avoid those pitfalls from the get-go. Um, so you can definitely name beneficiaries on other types of accounts besides retirement and life insurance. Uh, in those cases, it would be basically a payable on death, which is often referred to as POD, or transfer on death, TOD, designation. Um, so you can do that with uh, investment accounts and bank accounts, and you can say who gets what percentage, unlike joint ownership, but the surviving joint owner just gets it. You can say my children you know, get it equally, each gets a third or what have you, and they don't actually get it until you die. So you no longer have to have someone sign off if you want to, uh, you know, use that asset or something like that. Now, some jurisdictions do have that designation for real estate. Um, so that's kind of neat. You can do a payable on death transfer, you know, a payable on death deed, actually, but some don't. So that depends on where you live. So, Lindsay, so to clarify, so if somebody is married and they own everything with their spouse, Will there be probate at their death? Um, it depends, which is such a lawyerly answer. But <laughs> fine. Um, so at the first spouse's death, a lot of times there is no probate or there's some sort of abbreviated or small estate proceeding because a lot of married couples, not all, but a lot of married couples do own most of their assets either jointly or they passed to the surviving spouse by beneficiary designation. So only the things outside of those types of assets would go through probate. So often I'll see clients that, you know, the first spouse dies and we have a small estate proceeding um, because let's say the car, you know, the, the wife wasn't there when the husband um, bought the car. So the car's just in his name or maybe some sort of small working banking account wasn't just that spouse's name or something like that. Even refunds, like a little refund might come uh, for from the um, insurance company or something after someone's death. Those would be probate assets if in the decedent's name. Um, so um, a lot of jurisdictions, I think all, but I hesitate to say uh, definitely, um, have a small estate proceeding uh, in Maryland. It's very easy. It's basically open and closed on the same day. Um, you file the documents, you get the letters of pointing you as the person in charge, and you don't have any follow-up filings. Um, so for those types of people, it's really the second spouse's death when the actual uh, probate will occur, the bigger one. <laughs> okay. So let me make sure I understand. So if you have probate assets, they go through probate. Mm -hmm. um, maybe if there's a first spouse's death or maybe if you're single, everything is owned just by you. But what exactly is required, Lindsay, in probate? Sure. So, um, and we'll get into this a little bit more next time we talk, because as you okay. said, this is part one of two. Um, but the probate process, first of all, it does vary pretty dramatically from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, so, uh, you know, in every jurisdiction, though, the probate process is going to begin with filing some sort of petition 
a petition for probate uh, to the court, which is going to say uh, various information about the decedent, you know, where they resided when they died, um, where they died. A lot of stuff can be taken straight from the death certificate, what types of probate assets they had, um, who their heirs were. So there's um, heirs at law, which means who would inherit from you if you died without a will. And then there's beneficiaries under your will or legatees is the technical term. So um, you generally need to provide information for both. Now you don't need to leave money to all those people, right? You can disinherit basically anyone except a spouse. Um, so if you have three kids, let's say, and you had an unfortunate falling out with one of them many years ago, now they might not be a legatee or a beneficiary under your will, but they're still gonna be um, on this list telling the court who the heirs at law are. So they'll still get notice of your passing from the court and things like that, even though they're not inheriting from you. So basically you send that information in telling um, the court um, about the decedent, about the decedent's assets and family. Um, from there, uh, you'll also have to submit proof of death, the original will, if there was a will. So it's important to remember that um, absence of the original, uh, if, if it's absent, if you can't find it, uh, there's a presumption that it was destroyed during the decedent's life. So a presumption of revocation. So that's why it's very important to make sure you know where your original is and that it's kept very safe. Um, so that'll be submitted to the court. Um, and, you know, an estimate of the various assets that you had at your death um, and things like that. Um, it's important to know also if you own real estate in multiple jurisdictions. So let's say I live in Maryland, doesn't matter if I own real estate here. So let's say I live in Maryland, but I'm renting my apartment, but then I happen to own um, real estate in New York that I just rent out. You know, maybe I recently moved here and I'm renting that out, keeping it as an investment, but I live here permanently. Um, there would be the regular state administration here in Maryland, and then an ancillary state administration in New York. So the more places you touch, as in own real estate, the more probates there will be. Um, so uh, there's a lot of follow-up filings with a regular estate administration. Um, so with a typical probate, you know, everything that goes through probate needs to be valued or appraised. Okay. So that is significant for some people and insignificant for others. What I mean by that is people who just own regular stuff, right? They they have their house and they own, you know, pots and pans and old furniture and some artwork and a little bit of jewelry and that kind of stuff. Um, when they pass away, you know, you can generally, at least locally, um, you can use the tax assessed value for the house for probate purposes. You can um, use Kelly Blue Book value for vehicles. 
There's also another site that tells you um, for boats. I've only had to use that a couple times, so the name escapes me. Um, you can use, uh, you know, the online, you can look up the historical stock prices. So you can, there's this very specific calculation, but you can do that on your own. Um, but then when it comes to the stuff inside the house, right, your tangible personal property for regular people, like I just laid out, you hire an appraiser, they come, they walk around, they take pictures, they write a report, you pay them a few hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and then they prepare this report that you submit to the court. Now, if you own difficult to value assets, say an antique farm equipment collection, I didn't make that up, that was the case, um, or you own a business, or a percentage of a business. Um, now, even if a business isn't particularly lucrative, a lot of times they can be quite expensive to value. Um, so for people like that, that have difficult to value assets, you know, avoiding this whole process may make sense. And there are ways to do that, that I know we don't have time to talk about today. But, um, you know, again, when we talk next time, uh, we'll definitely get into a little bit more about that. Um, you know, like I said, I can talk about this for hours or potentially more, um, but there's, um, in addition to the actual documents, so the actual documents that need to be filed up front that I was just talking about, the petition for probate, all those things, basically you file them and then that person is going to be appointed so long as they qualify. And that's another really important thing to know. So in order to qualify as the personal representative or the executor, those terms are interchangeable. Um, it's, it's not enough to just be named in someone's will. Uh, they, they must not have been um, convicted of a felony. Uh, they can't have killed the decedent, right? Um, there's a very specific law that says if you killed the person or if you're responsible for their passing, you can't inherit from them. Um, that's come up once or twice. I never thought I'd actually deal with that. Um, and then, uh, you know, you have to be a U.S. citizen or closely or closely related to um, the decedent and a permanent resident green card holder. Those are some very specific rules in Maryland, but I suspect that there are similar rules elsewhere as well. Um, so, you know, I just thought that that was important before we go to point out, um, you know, that just because you name someone doesn't mean they're going to be that person. I have had situations where we had to come in and um, petition the court to name an alternative personal representative because although someone had a will and the other provisions were valid, they named, in this case I'm thinking about, an Australian citizen as the personal representative. And that can create a whole bunch more problems because if there were Australian assets, like there were in this case, the Australian person is the personal representative over there. And then here is someone else. Maybe they don't get along anyway. So it's just really important to remember, you know, not just that it's it's good to have a will, right? Uh, but it's, it's important to be very specific in your will, say what where you want everything to go and, and everything like that and who you want to be appointed um, 
and making sure that they are legally able to act for you. Um, so again, having that will, not having that will doesn't determine whether there's going to be a probate, but it does determine whether you are the one that decides what happens in probate and who's going to be in charge of effectuating your wishes. What type of an attorney should somebody be searching for? Let's just say they're not in Maryland, DC, Virginia to call you. So if somebody is in you know, Iowa or Oregon, what type of attorney should be they looking for to handle um, all these things? Yeah, sure. So, um, so an estate planning and probate attorney, estate planning. Okay. So I do estate planning and estate administration. Now, I strongly suggest someone contact someone like that, that does both parts of it, right? The planning while you're alive and the administrating after you pass, because I've learned so much uh, as far as how to properly write estate plans based on um, having to administer other people's poorly written estate plans. So there are attorneys that only do estate planning or only do probate, but in my experience, if possible, I would find someone who does both and someone that that's their specialty, right? Or some places you can't say it's your specialty, but you know, not someone who practices DUI slash personal injury slash probate slash business law slash family law, and they're a solo practitioner, right? They can't possibly have that much experience in all those areas. Yeah. So then I assume there's a charge for the probate process. If so, who who's required to pay for that? Sure. So, uh, yes, uh, there are court fees, um, attorney fees, if you have an attorney, um, and expenses that are just inherent in administering an estate. Like if you're going to sell the real estate, hiring a realtor, fixing it up a little, things like that. Um, so the estate, the decedent's estate, uh, would pay the administration expenses okay. um, if... There are assets, right? So it's really important to, to know what kind of liquidity you have. So if you have five pieces of real estate that are all going to need to be dealt with and sold at your death, but then everything else is beneficiary designated, let's say, and one of your children out of five is going to be in charge, you know, it might make sense to add a little liquidity maybe designate the estate as a life insurance beneficiary, for example, um, so that that child, in this case, has that cash at hand to deal with all those properties. Um, so that's that's a case-by-case -case basis for sure, but it's important to keep in mind uh, that aspect of liquidity for that reason. Very good. Well, this has been really good, Lindsay. So how can people find you? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, so, yeah, I know that I kind of rushed through things. And if anyone has questions about what we talked about or just general questions, um, like you said, I'm at Handler and Levine. We're here in Bethesda. Um, and they can email me. Uh, my email address is Lindsay, spelled L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, at handlerlevine.com. That's H-A-N. D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E.com. You can shoot me an email uh, or you can call me at 301-961-6464, extension 3315. Excellent. Um, and now we are, we haven't scheduled the webinar, the part two, but we're looking at sometime later in the summer. 
So as mm -hmm. soon as we have that available, we'll let everybody know. Um, regarding all of the upcoming and archived uh, webinars, you can go to our website, knowledgeableagent.com. I encourage you to go to YouTube as well. We ask that you do subscribe. We update that four to five times per week. Um, when you go on YouTube, by the way, type in Knowledgeable Aging. Uh, if podcasts are your thing, you can go to Spotify, Apple Tunes, et cetera. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.